you would have to be a, asleep uh, to miss that we have entered a particularly raucous political season, eventually leading to the election of the next president of the United States this November. As you likely know, the leading candidates for each party seem to be for the Democrats, Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders, and for the Republicans. At this point, it changes. Ted Cruz, Donald Trump, and Marco Rubio. I don't know if you saw the debate this last week. The Democrats are sparring over who's most liberal. They call it progressive. While the Republicans are sparring over who's playing fair. No, I am not going to endorse a candidate today. In, In fact, while I am on the subject of politics, most of you know that I actually try to steer clear of politics. Most times I am successful. Sometimes I'm not. Two weeks ago, I was unsuccessful, and I want to be humble enough to admit that. If you were not here because of the big snow, only half of you were here, we were actually in Mark chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. I I took the opportunity to point out that Jesus was facing opposition as early as Mark chapter 3, and that opposition came from religious and political leaders. I then suggested that we too, as promised by Jesus and New Testament writers, that we too will face opposition for our faith, most often from false religions or political ungodly leaders. That has, in fact, been the experience of believers um, through the centuries. It was my pastoral intent to encourage us in the face of rising opposition to remain faithful to the gospel and to not be affected by the animosity that is being spewed from from Christians across our country and even from our pulpits. Meaning, even though we will be opposed by religious groups, I don't know, let's say Muslims, who are trying to kill Christians for our faith, our response should not be one of vehemence, vengeance, and vitriol, but rather our response as followers of Christ should be the hope and compassion of the gospel. I still hold that to be true. This needs to be our knee-jerk response, but I must admit that I had been incensed. It's not hard to do. by some statements from Christian leaders and um, about this very issue, and I allowed their ungodly vehemence to negatively affect me. I suggested, for example, that we as believers should cling to the cross. I believe that. And then I added, instead of Amendment 2, that is the right to bear arms. Let, let me be clear. I believe in the right of self-defense. I was not intending to promote passivism. But, but, but here's the truth. My point could have been made without ever referring to Amendment 2. It should have been made that way. That is not really the issue. My pastoral concern is for our hearts, that we maintain gospel love for unbelievers, regardless of who they are, 
recognizing that we will be opposed for our faith. I don't want us to get caught up in this national hatred toward unbelievers. That's ungodly. So again, to be clear, I was not intending to make a political statement about gun control or Amendment 2. And if you, so if you heard, me, heard it that way, <laughs> and reflecting on my comments, I'm sure that some of you did, in all seriousness, please forgive me. That, that, that was not my intent. But, but let me also say this. If, if you choose to do so, that is, if you choose to exercise your legal right to arm yourselves, listen very carefully, in addition to arming yourself with guns, my brothers and sisters, arm yourselves with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That was my intent. I hope that brings some clarity. Here I am talking politics, trying very hard not to make political statements. I want my statements to, to be apolitical and thoroughly biblical. But you do understand that some political issues are also moral issues. So, if in our study of Scripture we come to those moral issues, we will deal with them regardless of their political party affiliation. I suppose probably the supreme example is that of abortion. We, I think, all understand that there's one party that supports it and one party that, that doesn't. I, I, that's not the issue for me. The issue for me is that the Scripture does not. It is a moral issue. And so when given the opportunity, with moral issues like that, I will address them. So that was my aside. That was my mea culpa. <laughs> Back to our political introduction. We find ourselves in the midst of a certainly entertaining season of politics. We are watching, I suppose many of you are, a series of debates, including this last week within respective parties. Later this year, we will, be, uh, we will enjoy, I'm sure, debates uh, between nominees of their respective parties. The <laughs> I suppose the intent of those debates is presumably to inform voters if they'd stick to the issues, and, and, and capture your vote. This is what they're doing. Here is why you should vote for me. Now, an interesting way that that was accomplished was, was last Monday in what is called the Iowa caucus. Now, now, this is a rather unusual way to conduct a primary. Uh, basically, what happens within Iowa's over 1,600 caucus sites is this. Depending on whether you're at a Republican site or a caucus or a Democratic caucus, you listen to speeches and either, if you're Republican, hand in a ballot or, if you're a Democrat, stand in an area marked out for your candidate within that caucus. Then, if your candidate does not capture 15% of the vote in your particular precinct, then your candidate loses, and you, the, 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 well, you're the losing voter, but you now have the opportunity to fix that and to join someone else. And so while you are deciding, voters 
from the remaining candidates try to capture your attention. They give speeches. They say, this is why you should cast your vote here. This is why you should join us. Can you imagine trying to say something so compelling about your candidate that it would cause others to vote for him or her? Uh, just another a little aside, it got me to thinking, if people had a few minutes to summarize my life in a few minutes, what would they say? Uh, what would they say about you? I'm going to suggest today that this is sort of what Mark has been doing in his gospel. He has been trying to introduce us to Jesus and in his very fast-paced way, it's like he's only got 30 minutes, he is going to suggest this is why you should stand in his corner. He really is the Christ. He really is the Son of God. This is why you should become his follower. He's the one. Let, let, me, let me summarize his life for you. And Mark tells us several stories, again, in fast-paced narrative. And he gives us a few summaries along the way with the intent of convincing us that Jesus is the real deal. This is who Jesus is, and this is why he is worthy of your life. This is why we're studying Mark together. I want you to be convinced that Jesus is the real deal, and he is worthy of your life. We have one of those summaries uh, in front of us uh, today in Mark chapter 3, verses 7 to 12. Look at it with me. Mark 3, verse 7 says, Jesus withdrew to the sea with his disciples, and a great multitude from Galilee followed, and also from Judea, and from Jerusalem, and from Idumea, and beyond the Jordan, and the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon. A great number of people heard of all that he was doing and came to him, and he told his disciples that a boat should stand ready for him because of the crowd, so that they would not crowd him, overcrowd him, before he had healed many, with the result that all those who had afflictions pressed around him in order to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they, they would fall down before him and shout, you are the Son of God. And, and he earnestly warned them not to tell who he was. I have said it over and over in our study of Mark thus far. Mark's purpose is to convince his readers that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of God. He is calling out to you. He is, he, he is calling to you this morning, repent and believe the gospel. Cast your vote for Jesus. And, and I'm saying become a follower with us. He's worth it. Now, the previous passage from two weeks ago, the one I got in trouble. At the beginning of this particular chapter was a story of Jesus going into the synagogue uh, on the Sabbath, likely the synagogue right there in Capernaum. He had been there before, and he had taught with authority, and he had even cast out a demon. News about him, no doubt, spread at that particular point, at least through Capernaum, perhaps throughout Galilee, and no, no doubt the synagogue was was full of people who were eager to hear from this. Well, more than that, they wanted to see him do something. What are you going to do for me today? That's what false followers do. What are you going to do or say to cause us to stand with you? What are you going to do or say to cause me to be a follower? Well, there were also those of the opposing party, if you will, watching to see what Jesus would do on the Sabbath. Are you going to break our rules? In fact, there was a man there. Some suggest that he was actually brought there by the Pharisees as a bit of a trap, a man with a withered hand. Would Jesus 
heal this man? You see, the tradition of the elders, the teaching of the Pharisees, said it was okay to apply medical treatment on the Sabbath if it was a life or death emergency. This was obviously not an emergency. This man likely had had this withered or paralyzed or dried up hand his entire life, at least for a very long time. He can be healed tomorrow, Jesus, but not today. And Jesus then asked them two questions. Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do harm, meaning to do evil? The clear implication there is this. To heal this man would be to do good, and to not heal him, to withhold healing would be to do harm. So what is it? They remain silent. Second question, is it lawful, is it right on the Sabbath to save a life or, or to kill? And we, well, that's a bit confusing at, at first glance. Jesus wasn't, well, this, this guy was not in a life or death situation. Jesus wasn't talking about the man. He was talking about what the Pharisees would do after he healed the man, namely in verse 6, that they would go out and conspire to kill Jesus They were so concerned about healing a man on the Sabbath, thus breaking their rules, and yet they would conspire on that same holy day to kill Jesus. Is that that lawful, Jesus asks? Do you see the hypocrisy and the irony that Jesus is highlighting? Well, Jesus did heal the man, and the Pharisees did go out and conspire with the Herodians. That was a political party as to how they might destroy Jesus. They, they, bear with me in my introduction, they caucused together to do violence to Jesus. They gathered in a corner and conspired as as to how they might destroy their opponent, who was obviously not a member of their party, because, don't miss this, opposition most often comes from religious and political groups, like in our day. And so what will our response be? This is my challenge. What we're finding in this book is, is rising popularity. The polls are going up. And so as a result, we're finding a rising opposition. Don't know if you saw the debate last night, but as I understand, rising in the polls is Rubio. And so everybody turned their guns on him, rising opposition. We're, we're finding that there were those who flocked to Jesus and those who didn't. In fact, those who didn't opposed him. And even among those who flocked to him, many were coming, well, most were coming with their own selfish motives to get what they could get. Give me a healing. Give me an exorcism. And and, and true followers were few, not unlike today. Those who oppose Jesus are, are never hard to find. Those who follow for the show. <laughs> what are you going to do for me today, Jesus? Is that discipleship? Health, wealth, prosperity? How are you going to line my pockets today, Jesus? They were following for what they could get out of it. Those are never hard to find. And, and then there were very few of those who follow Jesus for who He is, the very Son of God and the Savior of the world. Very, very few. I also want you to remind you that those really following Jesus were not those you would expect. They were not the religious. It was the, it was the broken. 
those who realized came to an understanding that Jesus was their only hope. You see, those who were truly coming to Jesus to be his follower were not adding Jesus to their already wonderful lives. They were adding him because he was it. It will be the same today. True disciples of Jesus follow because they have listened to the spirit-empowered call of the gospel from the scripture. That's what we're doing in Mark. We are listening to the call of spirit-inspired scripture written here by Mark, who is telling us this is the Christ. He is the Son of God. Look at who he is. Look at what he has done. You will be convinced. Follow him. He's my call. Mark gives us one of many summaries of Jesus' ministry. This is actually the longest of all of his summaries in this book. It actually serves as a bridge between what came before the early Galilean ministry and what comes after uh, through chapter 6 in the later Galilean ministry. But in this, we're going to find lots of key themes that we've already seen. There's actually not a lot new here this morning. But I want you to understand that Mark is piling up the evidence Do you see who he is? Do you see what he's done? It's going to become even more powerful in the weeks ahead. Outline is going to go something like this. We're going to see this on the heels of rising opposition. Verse 6, we're going to see rising popularity in verses 7 and 8. Then we're going to see Jesus continue this healing ministry in in verses 9 and 10. And then we're going to see him continue these exorcisms in in 11 and 12, but with a bit of a twist. There seems to be this also rising, increasing confession of the person of Christ in this ongoing cosmic battle. They get clearer and clearer. Let's begin with his rising popularity, verses 7 and 8. Jesus withdrew, likely to avoid premature death or continuing problem with these uh, false, re- these religious and political leaders. What I find interesting is this. There are times that it is appropriate to avoid confrontation and persecution. Jesus withdrew, but don't get carried away uh, with that. He continued his ministry. He did not hide, and when it came time to die, he would take the battle directly to them. So he withdrew to the sea. That is the Sea of Galilee with his disciples. That, that, and that includes at least those four fishermen, Peter and Andrew, James and, and John, and, and Matthew, sinner, <laughs> uh, tax collector Matthew by this time. There were also others who were following Jesus. In fact, in the very next passage, we'll find that he names the 12. But, but, but that's not all who f- followed. We read of a great multitude from Galilee followed. Now, Galilee is that area in northern Israel where Jesus was raised. He was raised in Nazareth of of Galilee. It includes Capernaum. It's not on this map, but it's on the northwestern shore of of, of the Sea of of Galilee. It was was where he was primarily doing his, his ministry. So in this rising popularity, a great multitude followed from all over Galilee. We kind of get that. But then we read they also came from southern Israel, from Judea, even uh, where, where Jerusalem is. In fact, we read that they came from Jerusalem, checking this guy out, no doubt to oppose him. <laughs> News was spreading far. That's what we're supposed to understand. They even came from Idumea. Do you understand that that is 120 miles to the south? You don't jump on your Honda to get there. 120 miles is going to take you some time to get there. 
This is a fairly significant following. This is the only place Idumea is mentioned in the New Testament. It's, it's another name for Edom. It's right there to the south of Judea. The, the people there were, well, they were distantly related. They were descendants of Esau. In fact, during the Maccabean Revolt, they were forced to convert to Judaism. Herod himself was an Idumean. They also came from beyond the Jordan. That is east of the, of the Jordan, at least in Perea, perhaps the Decapolis, uh, there were some Jews who leave, lived there, but there were lots of Gentiles who lived there. And not only that, we see that they came from Tyre and Sidon. This is very significant. That is north of Israel in the midst uh, uh, in purely Gentile towns. Do you understand? When they were coming from Tyre and Sidon, these were Gentiles who were coming. This is significant. Mark's point is in the midst of this rising opposition, there was also rising popularity. People were coming from every, look at the map, from every point of the compass. What a great picture of how the message of the good news of Jesus is to spread to every point of the globe. And can I remind you, we're not looking at a picture of the United States here. Sometimes we ask, I think it's an appropriate question that we ask, maybe I'm only a Christian because my parents were, and their parents were, but can I remind you that this faith, Jesus, the Son of God, lived in the Middle East. And so we could expect that many false religions opposing the true Christ would raise there as well. Why were they coming from everywhere? This is an important question. Point two, Jesus was continuing His healing ministry. A great number of people heard all that He was doing, and they came. And so Jesus told His disciples, get, get a boat ready so He can make a fast getaway if necessary. Uh, we remember that four of these guys were, were fishermen, so they not only had access to boat, they knew how to, to boat, so they knew how to use them. And boats are going to become very important in the, in the stories that follow. Get a boat ready because... He'd healed so many with the result that all those who had afflictions pressed around him in, in order to, to touch him. Uh, I want you to see that this is a virtual riot. I want you to see, I mean, we read this in the news. I mean, sometimes there are those stampedes that happen at, at soccer stadiums or even there in Mecca, and, and uh, hundreds of people will, will die. This is the potential, thousands of people pressing in around Jesus, they'd come for healing. The prevailing thought of the day, you see, was that they needed to touch Him in order to be healed. So they pressed in all around Him. The word actually speaks of falling upon, mobbing, crushing. There is potential violence here. Now, it is true that He will later heal a woman who had a bleeding issue, who pressed in with the crowds, touched Jesus, and was healed. But we should not make that some kind of procedure, some kind of voodoo thing. If I can just touch him, Jesus knew that she touched him, and it was her act of faith that he acted upon. We, you, when you read through the New Testament, you find that it's difficult to come up with any process or any procedure. He healed many with a spoken word without touch. He healed others who were not even there to be touched or even to exercise faith, meaning there is not a magic formula. There's not a magic formula. It is ultimately the work of the sovereign healer. We trust Him. That brings us to our last point, Jesus' continued ministry of exorcism. As He continued to, to, to do 
<laughs> battle with the demonic and spiritual forces of evil. Now, I, I recognize I overstate a bit when I say he was doing battle. It was really not much of a battle. Uh, we read here that whenever unclean spirits, that is demons, saw him, they would fall on their face before him. Uh, specifically, what that means is these demon-possessed people, when they came into the presence of Jesus, the demon in them would bow, and so the, the people would also bow before him. I love that. They were no match for the very God of the universe. We need to eliminate this idea of Greek dualism. You know, like we've got these two powers and we're just kind of holding our breath to see who's going to win. Kind of like the force, good force, bad force. And they got these lightsabers and we watch with anxious anticipation to see who's going to win. It's never in question. They come into his presence, they fall on their faces because they must. They must. Back in chapter 1, when Jesus cast the demon out of the man in the Capernaum synagogue, the demon cried out, What business do we have uh, with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. That's, that's a fairly clear but somewhat veiled declaration of deity. Later in the same chapter, we read that Jesus kept the demons from speaking because they knew who he was. But here, the demons themselves remove any ambiguity about the issue at all. They serve Mark's purpose. They fell down on their faces and begin to shout, you are the Son of God. <laughs> Come back for third service, whoever that was. That was good. <laughs> Just as the f Father at Jesus' baptism declared him to be the Son of God, so also do the forces of evil and little children. Amazing. From those who would oppose him, when they came into his presence, they could do nothing less than proclaim his praises. <laughs> you are the Son of God. Do, do you hear what I just said? The forces of evil must do obeisance. <laughs> To our great God. What an encouragement that is to us. The proof here is becoming overwhelming. Even the dynamic, demonic world recognize who Jesus is. Of course, this reminds us of that great text declaring the deity of Christ in, in Philippians chapter 2, which says there's coming a day. When every knee will bow, when every tongue confess, it doesn't matter where you live. If you're in heaven, if you're on the earth, if you're in the, under, uh, in the underworld, if you're in death, there is coming a day when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of our great Father. Hallelujah. Everybody's going to confess. I know we have lots of options today, lots of choices, which... Every tongue will confess. Finally, it takes us to verse 12, back to the so-called messianic secret that we've seen in Mark's gospel, because we find here Jesus earnestly warned them. He commanded them not to tell who he was. Uh, by the way, please notice he did not correct them. Oh, you think I'm the same? Oh, no, you're... No, he does not say that. Their confession was correct, but he commanded them to be silent. The time was not right. You see, why would he command this 
silence. Wouldn't he want them to proclaim him to be the Son of God? Isn't that Mark's purpose? Yes. We've talked about this before. There are at least a couple of very quick reasons that he commanded them to be silent. First, the public declaration would be premature. He was indeed the Christ, the Son of God. Uh, But you have to understand, the Jews of that day were expecting a Messiah to be a military leader who would overthrow Rome. And with this rising popularity, Jesus did not want to be pressed into a role he did not come to fill. He was not a military leader, you see, the first time. It's not why he came. He came to give his life a ransom for many, but he's coming back. It'll be a little different then. He commanded their silence. Another reason often given is that he would not have his identity disclosed by the forces of evil. It would be disclosed by his words, his actions, and ultimately by his resurrection from the dead. Do you remember Romans chapter 1? He was declared with power to be the Son of God by the resurrection. That was what the proof was. So, Mark has clearly been presenting Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God. In this text, even demons declared it. In the chapters ahead, the battle lines are drawn even more sharply. The the polarization becomes even greater. It, it, It continues, Jesus will do even greater things, begging questions that are asked that must be answered. They are questions for you today. Who is this Jesus? And are you for him or are you against him? Let me be clear. You cannot be neutral. You must decide. And so I invite you, given the overwhelming evidence here that will continue in our study, to believe that he is the very son of God, to repent and believe the gospel. Let's pray.